All right, welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio. And I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. If you ask your average rock fan to rattle off some of the most influential drummers, nine times out of ten, what are they going to say? Ringo, Moon, Bonham, maybe Neil Peart. But few stop to think about the drummers who influenced those players, the guys who laid the building blocks of a genre that thrives to this day. And I am privileged to have one of those drumming pioneers on today's show. Direct via satellite from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Mr. J.M. Van Eaton. Now, from his time as in-house session drummer for the Memphis Recording Service, later known better as Sun Studio, J.M. worked with some of the first and most enduring rock and roll and rockabilly musicians like Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, Charlie Rich, and scores more who recorded at what has been called the birthplace of rock and roll. I gotta tell you, I am beyond honored to have today's guest on the show, a man who was literally working on the ground floor at Rock and Roll's infancy. And as a session drummer for Memphis's iconic Sun Studios, he's recorded with rockabilly greats like Billy Lee Riley, Charlie Rich, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, and most famously played drums on Jerry Lee Lewis classics like Breathless, Great Balls of Fire, and Whole Lot of Shaking. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, J.M. Van Eaton. Hello, J.M. Hey, hello, Donald. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Well, uh, thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
We finally got all the uh, electronics worked out as we always. <laughs> well, man, you know, I'm uh, I'm an 83 year old man. <laughs> I'm way behind the curve on this uh, high tech stuff. But with your good guidance, you've got me here. So uh, I hope uh, hope all is well. No, thank you for that. And I got to ask you: You've seen so many changes in the music business. As a drummer, I know you record now as much as ever. What do you think about these changes? Are they for the good, for the bad? What's your thought on that? Uh, well, man, I think, uh, I personally, I like the old way. I like it when you're in the studio with no separation, no baffles. You get what you play. And I, I mean, I love the high tech stuff as well because there are times when that's very useful. But for my personal taste and for the sound and the feel where you can play off of each musician, I prefer the old way that we did it. All, you know, four or five guys in one room playing, man, just uh, go for it. You know, that's, that's my style. That's what I'd rather do. I think most people would agree with that, too, especially fans of rock and roll. I can't yeah. tell you how many musicians I've asked in this series, and I say, what's your earliest memory of hearing rock and roll? Invariably, they say Jerry Lee Lewis or Roy Orbison or any number of artists that have been on Sun. I know this might be a silly question to start off with, but... Do you ever sit back and realize how you helped spark a seven-decade musical revolution? I mean, do you see it in those terms? Uh, I didn't for a long time, but you keep hearing things from guys like yourself and other drummers uh, that I never dreamed of tell me that they were listening to this stuff and that inspired them to play, uh, LaVon Helms and guys like that. And so you start to digest it the older you get. You look back on, on life and... Uh, uh, I'm I'm humbled by it, uh, and and I'm thrilled at the same time. But you know, my my drumming was so primitive. But we had no one to listen to to play that kind of music. They were, we had to kind of kind of you know feel our way through all of that. But uh, yeah, it's 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 amazing, man. Really, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm kind of blown away that we're even having this conversation today. That you'd have an interest in what we did 60 years ago when I was just a teenager. Well, countless drummers owe you a debt of gratitude for paving the way, including myself. And speaking of paving the way, growing up in post-war Memphis during the late 40s, early 50s, what music caught your attention as a young man? Well, <clears throat> there was music in our home because radio was a popular thing in Memphis, Tennessee. They had uh, a lot of uh, bands came down from Nashville and had 30-minute uh, segments on the radio, and you could go down to the radio station and see these people live. It's where I first saw, and most of it was country music. You had Aaron, Charlie, the Leuven Brothers. They were lived in Memphis for a while. Southern gospel music was real popular. The Blackwood Brothers were on the Arthur Godfrey show. Now, I'm really dating myself here, but <laughs> that's how it all started. And, and you, you know, my parents would take me down to the old Ellis Auditorium and, and watch these uh, gospel groups come in. And man, they were showmen as well as could sing like crazy, you know. Sure. Uh, and we couldn't wait for the uh, Grand Ole Opry to come on on uh, Saturday night. But we actually had uh, some musicians that uh, back then housing in Memphis was a major problem. And we would uh, actually live in a big enough house that my mother would rent rooms out to different people. And we happened to rent this out to some musicians. And uh, they would rehearse in our living room. I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and I got a firsthand dose of live music and kind of fell in love with it. What kind of music was it? Uh, it was country music. But my first taste of when I, when I got in, in uh, junior high school in Memphis public school system, you had to take either vocal music or instrumental music. And, of course, I wanted to be in the band, but... Uh, I, I, I like Dixieland music. I, I listened to uh, Dukes of Dixieland 
they came out of uh, Roosevelt Hotel. You could get them in Memphis on Sunday night. You get them live from from New Orleans, and I really liked. I guess I liked the drummer because he always let the drummer take a little drum solo in Dixieland. Yeah. And my first band in school was a Dixieland band. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a mixed bag of stuff, man. I like I like pretty much all of it. I I don't want a steady dose of bluegrass. I don't want a steady dose of jazz. You know, I can take it, but I don't want two three hours of it. You know. Right. 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 Did you take uh, any formal lessons, or was this just teaching yourself? No, I I took music in school, uh, and you got you know teach you how to read. Yeah. But uh, they couldn't teach you how to play a trap set. That, that's where I finally, when I was in high school, probably the eleventh grade, I bought me a bass drum that had a permanently mounted tom tom on the on the bass drum. Yeah. And I bought uh, I was using the school concert snare. And I put all that together and made me a little trail. I don't even think I had a hi hat at the time. Had a ride summer, which I borrowed from the school and kind of made my own set of drums and taught myself to play because there's nobody teaching you how to play a trap set. Right. But, but, uh, I got a music scholarship to the University of Memphis, but I didn't take it because my senior year in high school, well, by, by now, by the time I'm in, the Elvis has come along and that's changed everything, especially in Memphis. And so we kind of got away from bands with, uh, well, we had saxophone, but we got away from brass sections and so forth and started playing more with guitars. Of course, everybody wanted to be Elvis, you know, uh, around here anyway. And that's how, that's kind of what got my attention and got me in the door. I, I I really wanted to be a rock and roll drummer. A lot of people say, well, they didn't want to do that, but that was my goal. So I started listening to drummers. Uh, man, I loved the blues guy, Jimmy Reed. I loved his drummer, that little shuffle thing that that guy got. And, oh, yeah. and, and the sound. See, to me, the sound that you get on the drums, to me, is just as important as what you're playing Sure. Uh, the tone. Especially, absolutely. That means a whole lot to me. And so I was listening to these different guys, man, and I liked, uh, I guess I was listening to Hal, I'm not Hal Blaine, but, uh, oh, the guy from Little Richard, I'm having a senior moment here. Uh, Earl Palmer? Yeah, that's who I was trying to think of. Yeah, yeah, Earl. And, and, you know, listen to those kind of drum looks, but, uh, I didn't realize who he was. I just knew I liked the drummer, you know. So I started with Billy Riley's band, and, and we only had like a four-piece band. And then we had a, a horn and a piano player later, which uh, came a permanent part of that band. But What kind of a kit were you playing around that era? When I was a, you know, a senior, I bought me a set of Gretsch drums. The, the, the bass drum I bought was a Gretsch. Yeah. The set of drums that I got that's kind of infamous was the uh, ones that has this cowhide head on the front of it. I don't know if you've seen any I've photographs. I've seen them many times, yeah. yeah. So uh, when I bought that set of Gretsch drums in 1956, now that head didn't come with it. I bought that years later after I was out touring in Texas somewhere. That's what I had, a little Gretsch set there. Now you mentioned Billy Lee Riley. How did you get to Sun Records? Well, I had two moments there. The first time I went in with a guy named Jim Williams, who had a 16-piece orchestra that I was playing in. But like I say, when Elvis came along, everybody wanted to do Elvis stuff. So he condensed that down and got an audition with the Sun Records. Sam Phillips was the engineer uh, at that time. We cut about four songs, and uh, 
Sam, he liked the boys singing, but he didn't like the songs. So then about three months later, I was with another band called the Echoes. Now, Sun Records at that time was called Memphis Recording Studio. So you could walk in off the street and give them $15 and cut an acetate dub, which which they just cut that thing right there in the studio. You know, you didn't put it on tape. You just went straight to the... <laughs> direct to disc, right? Yeah, you direct to disc, and you could get two sides for $15. So we cut a couple of Elvis sides. Uh, we did Lottie Miss Claudia, and I think Hound Dog was out about that time. And it just so happened that at that period, a guy named Jack Clement had just been hired by Sam to uh, start doing some engineering work. And he got that job because he cut a record on Billy Riley. And they took it to Sun to get it mastered. And when Sam heard it, you know, he said, man, I like that. Who did it? Da, 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 da. And, uh, and, you know, make a long story short, he gave Riley a record contract and hired Jack as an engineer. Well, it just so happened that Riley did not have a drummer and he didn't have a bass player. So uh, a guy named Roland James, who was a guitar player, <laughs> right. I, I'm glad it's a long way around to tell this story, man, no, but, no, you, please. but you shouldn't have asked me. Uh, <laughs> uh, Roland heard me cutting this, uh, these demos, these, these two little acetate things. So he told Riley, and they came out to hear me play with this band called the Echoes, and he hired me, and he hired uh, Marvin Pepper out of that band. His record that they had was called Trouble Bound, which I didn't play on that record. But the next record we cut in the fall of 56 was a thing called Flying Saucer Rock and Roll. But that's a long way around to tell you how I got hooked up with Billy Lee. But pretty little interesting story of how Jack Clement and I and Riley, we all got started at Sun about the same time from different directions. When I saw it land, gas jumped out and it formed a band. My thoughts was a rock and roll. My thoughts was a rock and roll. I couldn't understand the thing they said, but that crazy beat it just to stop me dead. Now, what are your memories of that actual session for Flying Saucer Rock and Roll? Like, how were the drums mic'd? Well, you only had one microphone. 
and it was uh, it was a gooseneck mic that came down pretty much on the snare. And they had these uh, dual mics that the bass player and he and I would share from time to time, and and they would kind of pick up the bass drum. So you don't get a lot of bass drum in some of those records. Right. And the ride cymbal, man, was right there close to the snare, as close as I could get it. It wasn't where you had to reach way out. It was very comfortable to get to that. But I had to put tape on it to tone it down because that was another one of those sound things because we didn't have separation. And and all this was bleed over into the microphone. So they had that one microphone. And, man, when you wanted to like, do like a cymbal crack, you just hit the cymbal as hard as you could hit it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it wasn't – you didn't have a crash cymbal. You just had one ride cymbal. And so you had to make that work for everything. And then uh, one snare. We didn't have many tom-toms at that time, especially on that record. Mm. But uh, that turned out to be a pretty cool little record. And, and I would imagine I- controlling your volume was a huge issue. That's what I try to tell these younger cats today, man. Uh, in the studio, they play too loud. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't adjust the volume. The, the engineer, now you may come with all this new high-tech stuff, but the engineer would get the balance. He would get you balanced there. You didn't go back and mix all this later. You mixed it, and he had to get his levels and pretty much have it all done right there at the same time. But then you would record to a quarter-inch monaural tape, Sam had two or three tape recorders. He had two of those Ampex recorders, so you could kind of work like a two-track, yeah, right. if you will. You, you you could play that and overdub on top of the other tape. But So we did that when we cut My Gal is Red Hot because we had to do these background, you know, Your Gal Ain't Doodly Squad. We had to overdub that. Those were interesting ways of doing but very primitive, man, but it, but it worked so well. My gal is red hot. Your gal ain't doodly squad. Yeah!
And then I got to hand it to Jack. Later on, that in later part of uh, 56 is when Jack Clement called me. He said, I got this guy from Louisiana coming up here. He was in here the other day, but I'd like to hear what he sounds like with the band behind him. And turns out that was Jerry Lee, and he called me on that session. So It was crazy arms, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and see, that wasn't even supposed to be a record. He came in with a song called End of the Road. That was a song he'd supposedly written, and I guess he did. So we did that, and we did two or three other songs. I can't remember what they were. But uh, at the time, Ray Price had the number one country record called uh, Crazy Arms. And so Jack Clement, being a country guy himself, he was just standing out there next to the piano and asked Jerry if he uh, knew Crazy Arms. And Jerry said, yeah, I think I know it. Well, by this time, he had asked Roland to come up and play with us uh, to audition Jerry, and also Billy Riley was up there, too. I'm not sure what he was playing, but he was he was around there. Jack went in, and he punched the record button, and Jerry started playing the song Crazy Arms, and there's nobody on the record but just me and him because the other two guys had gone outside to smoke a cigarette or gone to the bathroom or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so we were just the two of us on the record. Well, at the very end of the record, Riley walks in, picks up the guitar, and hits this one chord. But but other than that, uh, that very first record of Crazy Arms was just drums and piano. And I'm trying to find some kind of rhythm that would fit that record. So I play two or three different patterns through the song. And when the song's over, I said, well, I think I got it. Now let's do it again. No, that's good enough. We're not going to do anything with it. Well, Sam comes in. The next day or a couple of days later, and he hears the thing, and he goes crazy. He thinks, man, that's what I want. So they released a song that wasn't even supposed to be recorded that day. Crazy Arms started getting a lot of airplay around Memphis, and so I started playing some with Jerry, and uh, that's how we led up to a whole lot of shaking. What are your memories of that session? Well, that session started... It's kind of strange because we've been on the road. Back then, uh, you played these clubs in the South... You play these four-hour gigs, nine from one usually. And, and I call them redneck roadhouses, man. But So we were over in Blyville, Arkansas. Jerry had his four-hour gig. I didn't know if the guy knew enough songs to play for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we get over there. There's a four of us. It's me and J.W. Brown was playing bass by now. And Roland James was on guitar and Jerry Lee. And uh, he pulls out this song, a uh, whole lot of second going on. So we play it for the crowd, man. The dance floor fills up. Everybody likes it. That's the first time I'd ever heard the song. I'd never heard it before in my life. That's the first time I'd heard it. And, uh, man, a few minutes later, they come back, man, play that second song again. So we played it again. So before the night was over, we probably played it four or five times. Now, about a month later, we're in the studio. We're cutting this song. It'll be me that Jack Clement wrote. And he's the engineer. Sam's not there. So we're working on this song, It'll Be Me. And we work on it working. Normally, Jerry's not very good if he has to take over three or four cuts on a record. But we're, we're working on this thing all day long, it seemed like. We'd speed it up, slow it down, turn it sideways, whatever we could do to try to make it. Because Jack wanted it perfect. It was his song. He thought it was going to be Jerry Lee's next big record. Well, as we kind of wore thin on that, 
he says, man, let's take a break. Uh, try something else, maybe. You know, get off this song for a while. We'll come back later. And somebody suggested, and I don't remember who, I think it was J.W. Brown, said, man, let's try that shaking song we played the other night that went over so well. So, okay. So we hit that thing one time, cut. They, they, they We took it two, a couple of times, but they uh, they took the very first cut. No rehearsal, no run through, no nothing, man. Turned out to be a monster record. Yes, I say, come on over, baby, baby, you can't go wrong. We ain't faking, oh, a lot of shaking going on. Well, I say, come on over, baby, we got chicken in the corner. I said shake it, baby, shake I said shake it, baby, shake it I said shake it, make it shake Come on over take man and with all the flaws that's in it it's still you know it is what it is man. Oh, those but, aren't flaws that, that's just rock and well, roll that's the way it's supposed to be well people at that road going into that piano break you know uh like i say we hadn't played the song enough to really know what we were doing but right. uh the feel was so good and i'll take feel anytime over perfection for me uh i, I mean these engineers today man they got you know they can hear a pin drop yeah, you know they don't. They don't. You know, and and that's. I think they lose a lot of uh, soul uh, by not letting the guys just. You know, it get, it get too squeaky clean for me. I don't know. I I like the old stuff. But anyway, yeah. that's how it happened, man. 
Do you keep in touch with Jerry Lee at all? Well, as best you can. You know, he's in bad health right now. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, man, he's had a major stroke about two years ago, and he, he's trying his best to recover. But, uh, uh, man, it's not looking good, really, not to get back to form where he can play. Yeah. Now, now he has kind of had a little miracle recovery long enough to do a gospel album he's wanting to do. They did that about six months ago. But they just had a deal. It was on TV, uh, or, or they put it on YouTube, I guess. Him and his wife renewed their ninth-year wedding vows. I and, think I saw that, yeah. And, yeah. and, and uh, you can see he's pretty frail. Yeah. But his, his heart is still good. You know, he's still wants to do it, but physically, you just can't do it, man. It always amazed me how the rock and roll industry turned its back on him over what seemed like an overblown controversy today. But he found well, that... Yeah, go ahead. Go, uh, go ahead. I, I was, I was going to agree. I disagree with you. Because at the time, they were using... They were looking for any excuse they could to kill rock and roll. And, right. and uh, they couldn't find it with Elvis, and they couldn't find it with some of these other people. So they just... They just nailed Jerry down, man. They they, they, they they hit him with all everything they had. Somebody wrote me on Facebook the other day and reminded me that he definitely had that second wind recording some incredible country songs. About 107, I think, were on the charts. Were you on any of those? No, I didn't I didn't play on any of those, huh. although they released uh, some country stuff that we had cut at Sun. But the ones that he really made really good records, and they're great. Country records, yeah. man. Uh, uh, 39 and Holden. Uh, she woke me up to say goodbye. Uh, another place, made another Milwaukee time. famous. Yeah, those are great records, man. Great country records. And I love those records. And do you know he's not in the Country Hall of Fame? Yeah, I know that. They're trying hard to get him in there, and he should be in it because... But, man, the people up there that are voting on all this stuff, they... They hold a grudge for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, they're supposed to be uh, this certain class of people, but they're not very forgiving, yeah. uh, which they should be, you know. Uh, and it took Hank Jr. a while to get in there. I think they just put him in there last year. But, uh, you know, anybody that kind of halfway rebelled, they, they just, man, they, they're, hard to, they're hard to bring them back. And half the music they call country today isn't even country. It's just pop. And I, I don't know what that is, man. I know. I know. I, you know, I don't. I don't like it. I, yeah. I, I, I haven't learned a lot to play a new song in so long. I can't tell you, unless it's in a recording studio with somebody that I, I like to play with. But I don't. Uh, I don't play that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I just tell them to get somebody else. Really. That's it. I mean, at my age, man. You know, if, I don't want to go in there and hassle over some record producer trying to get me to play some way and do this and do that, man. I, you know, when you hire me, what you see is what you get, you know. You know, I, I keep telling them, I said, man, you, you don't hire Jimmy Hendrix to play like Chet Atkins. Right. You know, if you want me to play like some other drummer, go hire him. And it's not going to hurt my feelings. I wouldn't imagine Sam Phillips had anybody using click tracks back then or anything. No, no, no. Not metronomes or anything. No. Just no. let it let it breathe. Let it, well, Jerry especially, man, he'd pick it up and let it. And, man, you know, who's to say, man, Who you know, Who's to say that you can't pick it up? I mean, you, you get, uh, you know, you get some of these symphony things, man. They they pick the tempo up in the, sure. some of their stuff, you know. It doesn't have to be right every second beat to beat, man. You got you need to go for that feel. If it works for the song, let it happen. Yeah, right, man. It pushes. I kind of play on top of the beat sometimes, anyway, you know. But it kind of gives a, a little push to it. But sure. that's just my that's just the way I play, man. 
I know you made reference to live gigs before, and I mean, you were doing it then at a time when there were no monitors, there weren't big concert PAs. Talk about some of the difficulties that I would imagine came up. Well, one incident that really sticks out to me, of, uh, I was playing with Billy Riley. We were doing a concert over in Little Rock, Arkansas, in this big auditorium, and uh, we were going to do uh, My Gal is Red Hot, which starts off cold. What happened, man, the uh, the feedback, and you, know, you, you get the echo back because we didn't have any monitors, so you're about a measure behind by the time, you know, from where you ought to be by the time you hear My Gal is Red Hot because we didn't have monitors. So that was uh, that was pretty weird, but uh, we just made it work, man. We 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 figured out how to make it work, and uh, nowadays, man, you got to have all this high tech stuff. And it must have been difficult hearing the bass player. I mean, they weren't using electric basses, I would imagine. No, but they had a pickup on it. They would put it, run it through an amp. Okay. Yeah. Any wild events, any riots or anything? Because you hear these stories with audiences out of control at certain shows, and did you ever get any of that kind of hassle? We got into some of it, yeah. Uh, not like tearing my all the clothes off of them. They, they we played these big theaters, and uh, they'd get a little rowdy. They sure would, man. Back then, they didn't have a lot of police protection to keep the audience from getting up there on, you know, up there with you. Right. But I didn't tour quite as much as some of the other guys did. But uh, uh, I got my fill of it. I, I toured with enough. I'll put it that way. Sure. <laughs> well, tell me about working I, with Roy Orbison. Oh, man, you you couldn't ask for a better guy, Roy Orbison. Just as humble as he could be, man. And uh, Sam just didn't know what to do with him. Uh, I toured with him. We I, I went out on the road with him. We we did different gigs and, uh, in this area, the south, uh, quite a bit. But uh, I don't think, I, even I didn't appreciate his vocals until he got on Monument and had, you know, Pretty Woman and uh, all those great records that he recorded up there. But um, the records I played on with him, uh, it's an interesting little story. He had a band called the Teen Kings, and they had a record called Ooby Dooby. Mm. And uh, that was a dance that we're doing out in Texas at the time. But anyway, he was in doing a, a session, and him and the band got into some kind of problem. The band got in the car and went back to Texas. And so, right Sam there in called, the session. Wow. Yeah, right there, right there in the session, man. And, and he brought some singers with him, too. But hit some backup singers. They stayed. But anyway, Sam called me and, you know, man, Roy's all upset. Can you come down and help us fix this up? And so anyway, we went down and, uh, and, uh, they were cutting a song called Sweet and Easy to Love and Devil Doll. And that was my first time to play with Roy Orbison was on those records. And then, uh, we cut a demo called Claudette, which the Everly Brothers had out. And, uh, it's just seeing out on that. And they released that. Well. Good night, I'll holler more, 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 more
Once Jerry Lee came along, they put all their resources behind promoting him, and they let all these artists like Orbison and Billy Riley and Sonny Burgess and all those guys just kind of drop by the wayside. Hmm. Carl Perkins. It was a shame, man, but that's that's kind of what happened. But, uh, no, nah, man, I have nothing but fond memories with him. He was just a great guy and great to work with, and I'm glad he got where he got in the music business. What about Conway Twitty? What tracks did you do with him? Well, I didn't actually record with Conway. I toured with Conway, but I, I never played on any of his records. Uh, he had a little young drummer, younger than I was, and uh, they had this gig up in Canada. Long story short, I just went up there with him, and it's supposed to be a one-week with a two-week option, and we were up there, I think we were up there 16 weeks before we got back. Anyway, that was a heck of an experience, and <laughs> funny thing, man, he kept wanting to do country music, you know, and uh, I said, man, country not going to make it, man. We're, is right. Rock and roll was really big at this time, and he had a friend of mine was in his band, a guy named Martin Willis was a saxophone player. I talked Martin Willis into quit Conway Twitter and come play with Billy Riley's band. So, uh, so, and so we did that, and probably 90 days later, he has this record called Only Make Believe. Go, go figure. You played on one of my favorite all time songs from that era, Lonely Weekend, Charlie Rich. Yeah, now, now Charlie was a studio musician. He came in mainly as a songwriter, and he was just playing sessions. Uh, he played on, uh, we did some Johnny Cash sessions together, and he wrote some songs for Jerry Lee, but, uh, then we started cutting some songs on him, and, and we did uh, Rebound, and uh, I can't remember all his early records, but about three or four releases later, we came up with uh, Lonely Weekends. That's a good record. Well, I make it all right. Well, I make it all right. From Monday morning to Friday night. Oh, it's Lonely Weekends. Since you left me. Since you left me. I'm as lonely as I can be Oh, those lonely weekends Said you'd be good to me Said I love you, but never die Said you'd be good to me But baby, you didn't even try
Oh, yeah, Johnny Cash. And that was another situation where Jack Clement got me in on those records. Uh, For years, all they had was Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. Right. It had Marshall Grant, Luther Perkins. Well, they decided they were going to try to do a little more, I don't know whether you want to call it, uptown, put a piano and adding a drum and background singers. So Jack had written these songs called uh, I Don't Like It, But I Guess Things Happen That Way. And he wrote a song called Ballad of a Teenage Queen. Mm-hmm. And so they called me in to play, play drums on it, you know. And uh, all they let me play on was with brushes with a little backbeat, but not much. And uh, I don't think Johnny, I don't really believe he wanted me there at, at the beginning. But when he found out it sounded pretty good, he liked it. About the only, well, I, I cut, I think, about 20 songs with him. If you'll listen to a song called Straight A's in Love, you probably, not one of his big hit records, but it was a, you can actually hear the backbeat. It's more of a rockabilly than Johnny Cash ever did. He wrote some good rockabilly records. He yeah. wrote one for, for, uh, Roy Orbison, uh, and some other guys at the Rock and Roll Ruby Road Records. Man, they were, they were good rockabilly records. Uh, you yourself released some singles, right? I did release some singles as instrumentals. Back then, instrumentals were really big. We cut one with a guy named Bill Justice, a record called Raunchy, which was a major hit record. So with that being said, Riley's band, we played behind everybody. We just never could get a, a big monster hit on ourselves. We had local hits, but we never could get, uh, couldn't get a major hit record. But, uh, we were able to get them for other people. <laughs> that was, that was the thing about it. And one of instrumentals was one of them. So I started doing little instrumentals. I did, uh, one for Reader Records called Beatnik and, yeah. uh, and that's still out there. And uh, I heard your uh, vision of Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley, yeah, we did that. And, and the horn player that, that Martin Willis, he was our horn player with Billy Riley's man. He had a couple of instrumentals out, and he actually went on and played with the Bill Black Combo. He's the guy that played the, the horn part on that Smoky Part Two that Bill Black Combo had a big hit on. Yep, yep. And and that same rhythm pattern, you know, kind of came from all of that. But then I started trying to write songs, and uh, I'm not a very good vocalist, but uh, I was the only one that knew how the songs went. And I couldn't write the music because being a drummer, all I know is the percussion end of it. Sure. And so they, they didn't know how the melodies would go. So I wound up putting down some demos in the studio one day, and lo and behold, the guy running the place at the time thought he could sell some of that. So he decided to talk me into putting a CD out. Oh, they did. Got some original songs on that, so I do have some vocals out, but that's another story. <laughs> what was Sam Phillips like? He seemed like a very complicated man. Well, he, he was, uh, he wasn't around a lot when I was there because that's one of the reasons he hired an engineer to cull through all the talent that was coming through the door. Mm. 
while he was out on the road. So he was a such a small operation. He didn't have a a road guy to go out and promote the records. He would, he would call on the radio stations, the distributors, and uh, he couldn't be in two places at once. But Sam was, man, he was the man. It was like talking to the president of the United States. <laughs> I mean, you you know, for years I called him Mr. Phillips, and, and Jerry Lee Lewis still calls him Mr. Phillips. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of guys do. I, it took me forever to call him Sam. But his boys, uh, Knox and Jerry, they started calling him Sam, so... I started calling him Sam, but uh, man, he was just a special guy. He was a sound man that, like no other, he designed Sun Studio with that ceiling that's got those swerves in it, yeah, and put those acoustic tiles up there. And he's the one that came with that slap back echo, which is one of the big trademarks for his recordings. And uh, at seven oh six, you know, that was that was when he built the new studio. He built the echo chamber, and, and, and that new studio, man, it had a board in there 15 feet long, probably, with a million knobs on it, and you could get a symphony orchestra in there. But uh, it wasn't the same as at the old 706 Union studio. Right. But he was, he was uh, man, he was just a high-class, uptown guy, really nice. I mean, he's down to earth. He could make a musician feel wanted and, and, and get the best out of you. Yep. If you had something to offer, he could find he could get it. Now, whether he could sell it or not, that's another story. But he uh, he tried hard to uh, to make it work. When he heard something he liked, it's like Elvis. You know, Elvis they kicked Elvis around, uh, tried several different things. But when he heard "That's All Right, Mama," when they were just messing around, he knew that's what he wanted, and and that's where he was with with his music down there. He could. Uh, in other words, if it was broke, he couldn't tell you how to fix it necessarily. Right. He'd just go out there and say, uh, play something different. Yep. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me what to play, but he'd just say, play something different. And then, and then you play something different. And if it's what, if that, if that's what he was listening for, he, yeah, that's what I like. Let's play, just use that, you know. I always liked that because he didn't intimidate you like some of these producers do, man. I, some of these guys just, you know, I, I don't say they intimidate me, but they, they're just hard to get along with. <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced that or not. You probably don't have that problem. but Well, I've been lucky to have one great producer. He was just a good guy. He knew how to get the best out of you. Unlike somebody like a Phil Spector where you hear these crazy stories. And- yeah, that's what I'm talking about, man. You know, I went to Nashville and tried to cut some things. And damn, man, it just, you know, it just wasn't. A, wasn't a, I mean, I've recorded in, in t- lots of different studios, man. Yeah. And, and I recorded over at, uh, we cut a hit record called Mountain of Love at, at Royal Studio. And that was a, uh, later became High Records. And, uh, we cut Beatnik in those studios. And we, uh, we, I recorded at the, at the Quonset Hut in Nashville at Owen Bradley's place. And, uh, but nothing is quite like the old Sun Studio, 706 Union Avenue. They're just, sure. Uh, I cut it Fernwood. We cut uh, we cut a couple of records over there with Scotty Moore and Bill Black and those guys. I'm just going to ask you: Did you associate much with those guys in Elvis? Oh I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I worked with Scotty on on uh, one of his uh, instrumentals called "Have Guitar Will Travel." I played on that record and uh, played with Bill Black, and uh, uh, we would see them a lot. They didn't see Elvis a lot, but those guys would always be around the studio and when Elvis was in town he would come to the studio or just pop in unannounced and mm. uh, break up a session but that was all right but that's uh, that's how that million dollar quartet thing got just started but he would pop in just like that but 
I was fortunate enough to uh, go to his house and get a little mini concert from him. And we didn't appreciate it at the time, but now that I look back on it, that was a very special time. Absolutely. Uh, and Elvis was, uh, I like the, I call it the pre-Elvis, the, the pre-war Elvis. He wasn't the same. It was like two different Elvises to me. The, the early Elvis with the son and the early RCA stuff was just a humble, down-to-earth guy and, and just a good Southern gentleman. Mm. But when he came back out of the Army and started doing those Las Vegas shows and, yeah. and got those major productions and got this entourage around him, you never saw him again, man. You couldn't get in to talk to him. And, and as much as he would like to do that, uh, his bodyguard, his gatekeepers wouldn't, you know, you couldn't get past them. So I, I choose to remember the early guys that would uh, go down to the drive-in theater, down at the drive-in restaurants with you and have a barbecue and a Coca-Cola or whatever, you know, and uh, ride around Memphis in, in the back seat of the car. And, and, uh, just a, just one of the guys, you sure. know. To me, I don't I don't understand why he let the colonel do the things he did. I mean, I'm going off on a tangent now, but I I just it's almost I don't know if it's insecurity. I don't know. I think I think uh, when the colonel just got him on a roll and he didn't he couldn't get he got he got him going he couldn't get off of it. He's making more money than he'd ever made in his life, mm. and even though the colonel was was driving him crazy, probably uh, he never really complained to me about it. Uh, I mean, and we would have moments, you know, together and talk about it. I, we'd go to these, he'd have these skating parties out at, out there and man, they'd get out there and play like roller derby on uh, roller skates, you know, and knock each other down. I said, man, does the colonel know about all this? No, man, don't tell him either, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but it, I, I don't know, you know, uh, looking at it, you would think it was some sort of insecurity there but uh I, I guess man he was just all caught up in the money and and uh, making more money than he ever made and he just didn't know what to do sure. sure well i think it's fair to say that music changed kind of dramatically in the 1960s as it unfolded and british invasion happened how did that affect you as a session musician or did it affect you uh, well it did i i had to uh uh I, it got weird man we wasn't doing as many sessions and you know, I thought it wasn't nothing to cut and hit record, man, because we'd go down at Sun and cut these records and they'd put them out, and two weeks later they'd be on the charts. Uh, but when the hit stopped coming, you know, the sessions slowed down, and uh, we wasn't doing near as much work as we, as, uh, as we used to do. So I realized being a drummer, and I, I wasn't writing, so I wasn't getting any royalties. Uh, I was just a side man, or as, as it turned out to be. I started getting into other business interests, you know, and, and uh, doing other things, man. I got in the jukebox business. I got in the vending business and mm-hmm. eventually got into the uh, investment business, you know. I never got out of music, but I just had to find another way to make money because I wanted more than what I was making playing music. Sure. And so I had to find other ways of income. And these guys, struggling musicians today with all this uh, pandemic going on, some of them are going to find that they're going to have to find something else to do. They don't have to give up playing. Right. But they're going to have to find there's other things out there that you can do that keeps all this together. See, Roland James and I, we, we had a band. We played five years together, three nights a week in the 60s. Uh, you know, we didn't travel, but we still, he had a recording studio and we, but we kind of slowed it down. I didn't, I never really quit playing, but, but I had to do other things as well. 
there was, certainly was a resurgence in the 80s as everything comes around again. And uh, yeah. tell me about how you kind of reconnected with Jerry Lee at that time. Yeah, well, uh, that was kind of by accident in a, in a way. His manager, road manager, J.W. Whitten, I get a telephone call from him. They wanted me to sign a release. Uh, they get ready to make this movie, Great Balls of Fire, and they wanted to use my character in that movie. And I had to sign, well, they're going to pay me to do that, so I bring it over. You know? yeah. so, I, so I signed it, and uh, he said, while I had him on the phone, he said, man, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, not, not much. Why? He said, man, Jerry's got these three gigs, and uh, he doesn't have drummer. And I said, man, I ain't played with Jerry in, in, in 15 years, probably. And uh, I said, man, I don't, I don't think so. I said, let me think. He said, anyway, make, make a long story short, I went home talked to my wife, and she she talked me into calling them back. I thought surely they got somebody, but they didn't. So I I reconnected with him, man. We went out. Uh, he said, meet us at the airport. We got a gig. This is on a Friday afternoon. He said, meet us at the airport about six to seven o'clock. We got a gig tonight in Corpus Christi, Texas. Well, that's a long way from Memphis. Yeah. So I thought, how in the world? Because I didn't realize he's traveling in a Learjet back then yeah. so I met him at the airport man and sure enough I didn't realize he wasn't going to go on until about midnight either but uh, we got down there and we played and you know went back and did some shows with him in Dallas and New Orleans and around and uh, you know kind of rekindled that for a little while must have felt great being back oh it was it. great well man it was a whole lot better than driving around with four of us in a, in a <laughs> one car <laughs> yeah. on a two lane highway I tell you <laughs> you got the nice PAs now and you can Oh, yeah. Plus, they got a band leader, too. Kenny Loveless was with him, and Kenny could kind of keep you, you know, kind of let you know what, what you know, he he never, you don't have a set list. You get on stage with Jerry Lee Lewis, you don't, you don't have a set list. You don't know what song is coming next. Uh, he's liable to play Jesus Loves Me, or he's liable to play, you know, Great Balls of Fire. You don't know. Right, right. And so you got to be, you know, you got to know his stuff. And know his style and and what have you, but uh, and and of course he had a, he had more instruments and and it made it a little easier to play in the second time around. Earlier you mentioned how a whole lot of shaking was done at one gig one time before you ever even heard it. So there had to yeah. be with all those stops in it and the breaks, there had to be a, a certain amount of I don't want to say uh, telepathy, but you know it's it's that thing that only I'm, I'm thinking like a live musician, you know, man. Yeah. Uh, you really got to keep your eyes on each other. We do. Yeah, I really like to be able to see him, see the keyboard especially, uh, and and hear his vocals. I can usually tell where he's going. He and I are just we just kind of fit together, man. It's one of those perfect fit things. That's great. That that we were on the same page most of the time. Uh, he could start a song, and it wouldn't take me very long to realize, you know, where he's going with. It. It just works, man. The, you can, you know, you can feel the chord progressions where they're going and that kind of stuff. Sure. A lot of the musicians in, in that era, especially the ones coming from the South, I think they felt kind of a moral internal tug of war between being in rock and roll and being a good Christian. I know Jerry Lee famously struggled with it. Little Richard did. Did that affect you at all? Well, somewhat. I, I didn't. Uh, I am a Christian and, and, uh, I don't try to beat the people over the head with it, but right. you know, if they if they want to talk about it, I'd be glad to talk to you all day long. But but uh that's a Jerry Lee story scared me to death the first time I went on the road with him out for any length of time. We were out in Dallas playing and uh we played the big DJ Marie and then we left there and went to a club and played till about one or two o'clock in the morning. 
and it was it was probably three o'clock or so, and uh, we're in the bed. Roland's in you know back then you shared a room. I, I had two beds in each room, and Roland was in the room with me, and J.W. And, and Jerry Lee was in a room together. Well, anyway, we get to knock on the door. Jerry Lee comes in, and gets up on the bed, and starts hollering, telling us we're all going to hell for playing rock and roll music. Here I am, about eighteen, nineteen years old. It scared me to death, man. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain Too much love drives a man insane You broke my will, but what a thrill Goodness and gracious, great balls of fire I like the club, but my father was funny You came along and you moved me, honey I changed my mind, this love is fine Goodness and gracious, great balls of fire Kiss me, baby take of the killer's classic great balls of fire featuring jm van eaton on the drums and uh i'll give you a little inside baseball here funny thing happened right at the end there when we were talking about jerry lee damning his band to hell at 1 a.m for playing rock and roll just as jm was finishing up his story the line went dead turns out his street lost power right at that precise second believe it or not thank you if you like what you're hearing on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast week after week, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are available. Also, check us out online at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com, on Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast, all typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. And I'm going to leave you with a cut of J.M. Van Eaton's 1998 CD, The Beat Goes On, which I encourage everyone to go out and buy a copy. There ain't a bad track on it. And until next time, kids, in the words of Leonardo da Vinci, smoke them if you got them. Good night, America. I was born on the north side of the city Where the boys are tough and the girls were pretty Nighttime on the room, my work was all through Radio tuned into red hot blue Man, it was great just to be alive in Memphis in 1955. It was on a Saturday night, I remember it well. It was playing up to 
Francesca Hotel The band was so hot so they gave me a chill Mississippi River tried to stand still If I play a song called That's Alright Mama handed me this on Saturday night Dancing on TV and dancing in the street And they couldn't get enough of that 